Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Start out today's podcast by saying Shana Tova to the tribe. Uh, later on this evening at sundown, it is going to be, or it's going to start the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. For those of you keeping score, you know the Jewish calendar goes way back. It's actually going to be the year 5,784 when they blow in the New Year uh, with the shofar. Um, so this is the 1980s for for the Jewish calendar, but you know for most of us, it's the 1970s when it comes to inflation. That's the decade that where we're now living uh, most resembles. Although I don't think it's going to be just a rerun of that 70s show. I think it's going to be worse. It's going to be like your sequels. I've always joked about how you know sequels are always bad. Well, this rerun or sequel to uh, the 1970s uh, in the, um, the 2020s is going to be worse. I mean, this is going to be the opposite, you know, of the roaring 20s of the last decade. You know, the 20s was a, a big boom time in uh, the 1900s, right? 1920, of course, it ended with a disaster uh, with the crash of 29. And so the 30s ushered in the depression. But right now, I think we're going to have a combination, really, of the 1930s and the 1970s. We could have the worst of both worlds uh, and that's what we can look forward to. Uh, so hopefully we have a happy New Year's, but knowing that we've got uh, all of these problems on the horizon. And I want to talk about inflation because today was a big week with inflation data. But I think the more important uh, aspect of you know the inflation data was how few people seem to comprehend what it means. I mean, most of the talk uh, that I hear by the you know the talking heads on uh, you know the financial uh, media is that everything is great, right? That the inflation threat is pretty much behind us. Yeah, there's a little, you know, a few more bumps in the road, but we're, you know, we're on the road to 2%. No problem. We'll be there. The Fed's going to be cutting interest rates by next year. So these high rates are not really a problem. It's just a temporary nuisance until we get back to, to low rates. That's what everybody expects. I mean, I heard this guy, I was watching on CNBC, and this guy is proclaiming that, you know, inflation has topped out and it's coming down. How can he say that? When if you actually look at what's happening, it's the reverse. Inflation has bottomed up and is now rising. The opposite of what he said. Look, we had a long run of low inflation, at least the way the government measures it. Not the way, you know, people live it, But the way the government measures it with their flawed CPI, we had better than a decade where uh, CPI was below 2% average. I mean, we had a couple of years where it was above it, but we had several years where it was below. But the average was under 2%. And that all changed in 2021. 2021 was the breakout year for inflation because the way the government reported it, uh, inflation was 4.7% in 2020 
21. That was a big jump, you know, more than double what it had averaged, not only above two, but above four. And then in 2022, it got worse because the inflation rate in 2022 was 8%. So, if you think of inflation like a stock, this was a massive breakout. You had a 10-year consolidation kind of below this 2% resistance. And now it's a massive breakout above 2%. Now, 2022 looks like it's going to be a bit of a pullback. It's not going to be as bad. I mean, 2023, this year, is a pullback year. It's not going to be as bad as 2022, right? We're going to pull back towards the breakout. We're not going to get anywhere near 2% for the year. I mean, maybe we'll get down to 4 or 5%, something like that. But what we're re- really doing is kind of retesting the prior resistance. So if you were a trader, you would want to buy inflation, right? Inflation looks very bullish on a chart. It broke out, and now you got a little bit of a pullback And it's an opportunity to buy the pullback following the breakout because all the evidence is that inflation is headed a lot higher. And before I get to the official numbers, let's look at what happened again in the oil price. I'm looking at the price of oil. I think it's settled for the day, although maybe they're going to adjust it. But we closed the week above $90 a barrel. $90.34 is where they're showing it now. And I'm recording this, you know, about a half hour after the U.S. stock market closed. But this is the highest oil prices have been now of this new bull market. Oil is up another 3% on the week. This is one week. And if you just go to the beginning of September, you know, the the inflation numbers that we got were from August. And I'm going to get to those. But since then, in September... Oil is up another 8%, and the month is like half over, and we're up 8%. And there's no real resistance. I mean, we're headed for 100, certainly before the end of this calendar year. And by next year, we could hit a record high. We could get back up to $150 a barrel for the price of oil. But oil keeps going up. The other thing that keeps going up are interest rates. Bond yields continue to rise relentlessly. Oil prices, bond yields keep going up in tandem. Now, if you understand the U.S. economy, what are two uh, important aspects of our economy? Well, we have a lot of debt, right? Everybody has debt. The national debt is not quite $33 trillion. I keep watching it. It's 32.97 ish so maybe it's going to hit $33 trillion, uh, by the next time I do a podcast. But the government has a lot of debt. Corporations, consumers... Everybody is loaded up with debt, and everybody has to pay interest on that debt. Well, interest rates keep going up. A lot of this debt matures, has to be rolled over. These prices are going to affect the consumer price index. Interest is built in there. And Americans are going to have to deal with it even just directly as they they service their, their debts. America uses a lot of energy. We're not exactly very energy efficient. You know, we drive a lot of gas-guzzling SUVs. A lot of Americans don't necessarily have energy-efficient homes. A lot of people bought these McMansions, and they have a lot of square footage now that they need to heat or air condition. So we use a lot of energy. And, in fact, we lose use more energy than people realize because a lot of people look at the fact that, you know, maybe we don't need as much uh, gas in manufacturing or energy as we did you know, in the 70s, for example. But that's because a lot of the stuff that we import, we used to make ourselves back in the 70s. So we, we consumed a lot more domestically made automobiles and other manufactured goods. And so the companies that made those goods, they, they consumed the energy to produce them. But if we're importing an automobile that was made you know, in Germany or Japan, the energy to produce those goods was used by those companies. So it doesn't really show up here as energy, but it shows up in the price of our imports. And so those import prices are going to go up because the countries producing them need more energy to make the stuff. But also now they have to ship the stuff all the way over here. And so there's a lot of energy that goes into shipping, transporting, not only getting all the stuff you know, from Europe and China, and now it's on the coast, right? It's on the West Coast or the East Coast. But now how do you get it to the middle of the country? You got to load all that stuff up on trucks. 
well, what makes the trucks go? Well, they need gas there. So it's all this transportation that we have that we didn't have as much back then when the factories were closer to the, to the end user. So we need a lot of energy. We have a lot of debt. What's the worst thing that can happen? Interest rates go up and energy prices go up. And the both, they're both happening at the same time. So it's obvious to anybody who opens their eyes that inflation is not uh, topped out and coming down. It's bottomed out and going up. And the people who you know, are blind to this, you know, who are asleep, they are in for a rude awakening. And that is a lot of investors are in for a rude awakening next year when inflation is so much higher. Because I think that 2024 is going to be a worse year for inflation than, uh, than 2023, right? So 2023 is the pullback year. And then 2024 is where we shoot back up again. So all of these rosy Goldilocks scenarios that, that are out there, they're all going to fall apart in, in, in 2024. Now, politically, you know, all of this should work to the benefit of Donald Trump, uh, the presumptive nominee, uh, because Bidenomics is going to be an even bigger disaster uh, election day 2024 than it is now, because inflation is going to be much higher. There's a good chance the economy will officially be in a recession by then. And who knows how high gas prices will go? Because Biden pulled you know, a fast one on the voters during the midterms by raiding the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I already pointed out that we're at the lowest level in uh, 40 years. Uh, it's the lowest ever when it comes to uh, the day's supply. So I don't think Biden is going to dare empty that thing completely. So, you know, he's out of rabbits to pull out of a hat. Oil prices are going to go up. So if oil is $125 to $150 a barrel come election day, maybe higher, how many people are going to vote for Biden? I mean, they're going to be riding their bicycles to the polls because they can't afford gas for their car. Who are they going to vote for? They're going to vote for the other guy whoever's not in control. Plus, Trump is going to have a very good campaign, Make America Great Again, talking about how cheap oil was when he was president. And it was pretty cheap, whether that was his fault or not. He could at least point to where the oil price was and how much higher it is now. And not just oil prices, but everything else is going to be a lot more expensive by then. So I don't know why these voting, you look on Predict It, and Biden is still a pretty good favorite, or even the Democrats are the favorite to win by a decent margin over a Republican, I would take that bet. I think that I would bet Republican because, you know, you throw the bums out. Nobody has been uh, this unpopular in their first term other than uh, Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter didn't have a second term. Um, Trump was unpopular, not this unpopular but he was unpopular and he didn't have a second term. Nobody has been reelected with favorable ratings as low as Biden's and as low as they are now, they'll be that much lower come election day next year. Anyway, we've got a quick commercial break and we'll come back and we'll get into the uh, CPI and the PPI numbers. The new Super Beats Heart Shoes Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. Let's get into the tale of the tape. We got the CPI on Wednesday, and everybody expected the CPI to come out hot. And we met those expectations. The consensus was for a 0.6% rise for the month, which is a big jump. That's a lot of uh, inflation in a single month. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. We, prices were up, according to the government, 0.6% for the month. But where the numbers were worse than expected was the year-over-year number. They were expecting 3.6, and we got 3.7. But what's more important to me than the 3.7 is the trend. Because two months ago in June, we were 3. Last month, we were 3.2. This month, we're 3.7 or August. And based on what I'm seeing in the market, the September number could be even hotter than the uh, August number 
or at least another big number so that the year-over-year increase by next month could be close to four. Maybe we'll even have a four handle. But what's significant here is that we're moving up. Again, this guy was saying inflation is peaked and coming down. Well, no, it, it, it bottomed and it's, it's turned up and we're at 3.7. We're moving farther away from the Fed's so-called 2% target. In fact, by next month, we could be double the 2% target and headed in the wrong direction. Meanwhile, the Fed is pretty much out of bullets as far as rate hikes. I mean, if you talk to Wall Street, because again, everybody is thinking one and done as far as the Fed. And so if inflation is headed back up and the Fed only has one more quarter point rate hike, that's not going to do anything. What difference is that going to make at this point? And we can't sell oil anymore out of the strategic petroleum reserves. So we're out of bullets there too. Uh, where's inflation going to go? It's going to go much, much higher. Now, the core also worse than expected. They were looking for a gain of 0.2. We got a gain of 0.3. That may not sound like much, but in terms of inflation, it is because, A, it's 50% more than they thought. But this is just one month, right? So, you know, it's not the whole year. You're just looking at an increase in one month. And so that's a big number. The year-over-year core, though, came out in line at up 4.3, which is lower than the 4.7 from last month. But my bet is that the September number, I think the core rate is going to be higher than 4.3. So I think the core is going to start moving back up as well. The headline came down the most. And in fact, the headline started to drop first. And then the headline bottomed first. And now it's going up. And now the core is going to follow. But meanwhile, The core is supposedly what the Fed really cares about, right? Because food and energy are just a bunch of noise, according to the Fed. They want to look at when you strip it out. Well, when you strip it out, we never even got below four. Their goal is two. They want to have a core at two. And they didn't even come close. And now now we're at at 4.3 and rising. So this was bad news. The markets, you know, they were down. but then they rallied. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, the markets still don't get it. I mean, they're still like looking at it like it's okay. And it was interesting to me, the gold market, which initially sold off a bit, gold held up. In fact, gold was actually positive on the week, despite worse than expected inflation news on the CPI and the PPI, a rate hike out of the ECB. I'll talk about that again, too. They, they hiked rates. Um, but all this did not hurt gold. Gold held up and gold stocks did even better. Gold stocks were up. Actually, yesterday, gold was down about 10 bucks and gold stocks were up two or 3%. Today, gold recovered those, uh, that, that loss was up about 12 bucks. So it closed the week around 1922, but gold stocks were up another two or 3% today. So they look like they bottomed. So maybe somebody is figuring this out finally, that higher inflation is good for gold. It's not bad for gold. The, the, the view is that high inflation hurts gold because it means the Fed has to fight harder to win the inflation war. I've been saying no. It just proves that the Fed already lost the inflation war and inflation won. And that's bullish for gold. It's actually bearish for the dollar. The dollar hasn't rolled over yet. The dollar was up a bit this week. Uh, not much, but it still managed to gain. But, you know, Paul Krugman came out on the week after these inflation numbers came out and basically on Twitter declared that the inflation war is over and uh, declared the, the, the government the winner, right? The victory. And he's saying it's so great because, you know, the Biden administration is just, you know, a bunch of geniuses. They pulled off the impossible. We, we won the war on inflation without any collateral damage to the economy. According to Paul Krugman, the economy is great and we've won the war on inflation and there's no recession. I mean, how wrong can one guy be? I think he's abused that privilege of being wrong. You know, I threw down the gauntlet. I challenged him to a debate. Of course, I knew he wouldn't accept because lots of people want to debate Paul Krugman and he won't debate anybody, right? He's got that Nobel Prize, you know, that he can fall back on. I mean, he can bring that prize to the debate, you know, if he wants to hold on to it for confidence. But I think most people without a Nobel Prize can figure out uh, that he's wrong. I mean, I agree with Krugman that the inflation war is over. I just disagree uh, on who won. I, I think inflation won. Uh, it's just that 
the, the Fed hasn't officially surrendered, uh, but they're going to. And of course, when that happens, I mean, gold's going to go ballistic. But you don't want to wait for that to buy it. You want to head over to shift gold and buy your gold now and your silver uh, before this, this next breakout. Because when it moves, I am convinced it's going to be fast. And anybody who's trying to finesse this, anybody who's trying to time the market, well, I'm going to wait for a big sell-off. I'm going to wait until the Fed totally capitulates. I'm not going to buy my gold until they slash rates down to zero and they're full-on QE. You wait for that. You could be paying $3,000 an ounce. I don't want to do that. I'm confident enough that I know what the Fed is going to do that I'm going to place my bets before they do it. I don't have to see the Fed's hand to know what they're holding. Right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put my chips on the table now, uh, because you have much better odds, and that's what you know. I'm, I'm encouraging people. Same thing with your investment portfolio. Get out of U.S. stocks. Foreign stocks had a great day today. They did well yesterday across the board, uh, much better than the U.S. market. You know, I think uh, the U.S. market again to me looks like it's toppy. There was a little bit of a a last hurrah today uh, in the Nasdaq. Uh, with ARM, ARM came public, big IPO. Interestingly enough, it closed negative on the day-to-day, down 3.6% after hitting 69. I forget where the IPO price was. It had a big uh, debut yesterday, a big pop, huge valuation. But the fact that it closed negative on the day, I think, is, is a big problem. We'll see if it goes below its IPO price next week. It easily could do that. Meanwhile, I'm looking at the NASDAQ was down one and three quarters percent today, closing near the lows of the day and down on the week. Um, the S&P, let me take a look at uh, how the S&P did on the week. It was also down today about 1.2 percent and down a little bit on the week. The, the NASDAQ did a, uh, a lot better than the, uh, than the NASDAQ. I mean, than the S&P. The S&P did a lot better than the, than the NASDAQ. And it looks like the Dow did eke out a, a gain on the week. Not a big gain, but that's despite a near 300-point uh, drop today. But I think the foreign markets did a lot better than the U.S. market. And I think going forward, you got a rocky road because I am looking for continued rise in the oil price. Right From here, we could be at 100 very quickly. We could have another big spike up in bond yields, which is going to be very problematic for the market. Remember, I mentioned the ECB hiked rates to 4%. They're going to keep on hiking. You know, uh, if you listen to Lagarde talking about, you know, the, the ECB, we're going, to, we're going to be tight. We're going to be higher for longer. We need restrictive policies because we want to fight inflation. Well, she's just getting started. They're not even close to being restrictive yet at 4%. Rates need to be much higher in the Eurozone, and that is going to be a big problem as they go higher because there's a lot of debt in the Eurozone. But remember, when inflation was 1.5, 1.6, 1.7, what was the ECB saying? Going back to Mario Draghi, we're not close enough to 2%. We need 2%. In fact, they didn't say 2%. We need to be close to but under 2%. So here you are at 1.7, and you're the, the chairman of uh, the, the European Central Bank. Inflation is 1.7, and you got interest rates negative. You're doing all this QE because you're saying 1.7 is not close enough to being just below 2%. Like this fool was trying to micromanage inflation and flooding the economy with money to try to move the needle from 1.7 to 1.9 something. And I kept saying back then, what if they overshoot? In order to move inflation needle up a tiny bit, they're risking blowing through 2%, which they've done. They're way above 2%. And now what are they going to do? Now they have the exact problem on their hands that I warned about that they didn't care about. But now they're claiming, yeah, we need 2% inflation. So we'll see how much longer they can hold on to that target. But that means rates are going a lot higher than 4% in the Eurozone. And Japan, I mean, who knows what's going to happen over there. Uh, I'll talk about that after this break, and I'm going to get to the PPI, which I haven't even spoken about. So stick around. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. 
Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Yeah, I started talking about Japan, too, which is a big problem looming not even too far on the horizon. The Japanese yen is getting close to 150 to the dollar. It's around 148. I remember when the yen uh, uh, topped out and the, 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 the dollar bottomed out around you know, 2008, you know, before the financial crisis. So you only needed 80 yen to buy a dollar at, at the peak of the yen. Now you need almost 150 to buy a dollar. I mean, the yen hasn't been that low in a long time. Now, if you go way back to the early 1970s, you needed 360 yen to buy a dollar. So there was a huge rally you know, from 1970 through uh, 2008 in the yen, but then it, it, it topped out. But inflation is a big problem in Japan. Again, you know, for years and years and years, just like the ECB, they said, we don't have enough inflation. It's below 2%. Well, now it's 3% and rising. And in fact, I'm sure it's higher than that. I don't believe their official uh, government numbers either. Uh, but inflation is going much higher in Japan. I mean, it's obvious. I mean, they've still got rates pretty much at zero. They're still doing quantitative easing. And look at oil prices. I think they're near a record high, as high as the price of oil is now in America. It's even worse in Japan. And the Japanese don't even produce any oil. They import 100% of their oil. And now they have to produce a lot more to pay for that oil because they need a lot more yen to buy it. Gold has already hit a record high in Japan. In fact, I was reading this article on Zero Hedge. They've already got a bit of a gold rush going on. You know, it's too bad shift gold isn't in Japan. Japan, we might be cleaning up over there. I got to I gotta get, get over there uh, because the Japanese, they got to get rid of their yen. You can't hold these things. It's a hot potato because you still got, you know, no interest rates in Japan. What are you going to do, buy a 10-year JGB? I mean, they don't even yield 1%, and they're just going to lose all this value. So people are buying gold, and, uh, you know, and that's going to continue. But all this, of course, at some point, the Bank of Japan is going to have to do something. They're going to have to do something to tighten up, and that's going to kill the market for Japanese government bonds, the JGBs. Well, what's that going to do? That's going to hurt the treasuries. That's going to hurt uh, the bunds, uh, you know, in, in Europe or the gilts in the, in the UK. Everything is going to get hit when the JGBs uh, come down. And, of course, what is Japan doing now? How are they trying to prop up their currency? they got to sell dollars. Well, where are their dollars? Well, they're in treasuries. So they got to sell their treasuries and then they got to sell the dollars they get when they sell their treasuries. Everybody's selling treasuries, especially the treasury, because we have massive deficits that are getting bigger every month as all this low yielding debt matures. You know, I looked at the tax revenue right now, right now, the U.S. government spends more on Social Security, Medicare, defense, and interest on the debt, just those four things, it spends more than 100% of tax revenue. Imagine that. After the government pays for those four things, there's nothing left of your taxes. It's all gone. How do they pay for the rest of government? With debt. But it also means that even if you cut everything out of the budget, right? if the only thing the government did was pay for Social Security, Medicare, interest on the debt, and the national defense. If that's all it did, and all the other domestic programs, everything else that the government does, right, that, that people you know, think they depend on or think they need, because Social Security is just a transfer payment. They take money from one person, give it to someone else. Same thing with Medicare, transfer payment. Not interest on the debt, transfer payment. They take the money and they give it to the bondholders. The only thing that isn't a transfer payment is defense. That's They're paying for that service, so we have to pay, but we don't really feel the benefit of national defense. I mean, you could say, well, the benefit is, you know, we're not getting invaded, right? But, you know, you don't feel that in, in your daily life. And in fact, it would be better if we didn't need all this money on defense. If we didn't have so many enemies, right, we wouldn't have to spend so much money defending ourselves. If we minded our own business, it's like, you know, if you live someplace and you, you know, you make a lot of enemies, right? You, you, you just piss off all your neighbors and now you got to spend a lot of money building fences and maybe getting some dogs on your property because everybody wants, you know, a piece of you and you have to spend all this money on security. 
you know, that's not a good thing because that's money you can't spend on other stuff. So because we pissed off so many people all around the world, we need this massive military to protect ourselves. And we can't use that money for something else because we've spent it on national defense. But the point I'm making here is even if you eliminated everything that the government does, they'd still be running a deficit. That's how bad it is. The budget still wouldn't balance if you eliminate everything. That's why, you know, when I see some of these Republican candidates and they, they come out and they say, yeah, you know, I want to do something about the deficit. Let's cut spending. And then, you know, you ask them, okay, what are you going to cut? And they, they can't come up with anything. It's like, well, we want to, you know, cut back on some of this Biden spending, you know, for the Green New Deal or the Inflation Act or, you know, they, 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 they tinker around the edges. Nobody talks about Social Security, Medicare, defense, interest on the debt, right? No, you're not going to cut that. So if you're not going to cut that, the rest of it is meaningless, right? So no one's going to cut anything. And so the deficits are going to keep on getting bigger, which means even more upward pressure on interest rates, which and means more pressure on the Fed uh, to monetize debt. Uh, you know, I think that at some point, I think the Fed has already given up on the inflation target, the 2%. I mean, they're not going to come out and say that because that would be an even bigger problem, right? I mean, so, you know, if you're, if you're at poker and, and you're bluffing, you know, you don't tell everybody that you're bluffing, at least not intentionally, because it destroys the whole, the whole purpose of the bluff. You know, unless you're, 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 you're bluffing that you're bluffing and you actually have a great hand and you want people to think you're bluffing. But the Fed wants uh, every, the markets to think that, you know, they're holding the, these cards on fighting inflation. So they, they don't want to say that they, they don't have the cards anymore, that they gave them up, right? So the Fed wants to pretend. But I think they've already pretty much said, look, we're not going to get the 2%. It's just not going to happen, right? You know, let's see if we can hope to stay below 4 Right. But we just don't want to acknowledge that. But I think that not only are they going to give up the inflation target, they're even going to give up price stability as a goal. Now, of course, if they end up with three or four percent inflation, it's even harder to argue that you've got stable prices. I mean, I've always said that even two percent doesn't qualify as stability because if prices are going up two percent a year, that's not stable. That's a two percent increase every year. Price stability would be the prices stay the same. That's what stable means. Going up every year isn't stable. Now, of course, if they're going up by 4%, that's a lot less stable than when they're going up by 2%. But I think not only is the Fed going to uh, give up on um, its uh, inflation target, I think they're going to give up on price stability as even a mandate. I think ultimately... The Fed's mandate is going to be just to keep everything uh, from hitting the fan, just to keep everything from collapsing. Their mandate is going to be bail out the government, you know, monetize the debt, bail out the banks, right? Bail out the markets, right? Prevent economic Armageddon, prevent a massive financial crisis. And they're not going to care how much inflation they create in the process because they're going to think preventing those bad things from happening uh, is more important than keeping inflation down. As much as they want to talk tough about how important it is to have low inflation, uh, they're not willing uh, to sacrifice the banks to force the government to cut Social Security and cut Medicare. Uh, they're not going to make depositors lose money because they don't bail out the banks when they fail. So I think inflation is only a goal up to the point where it creates problems politically uh, that nobody in Washington is willing uh, to accept or confront. Now, let me get back to uh, these numbers. So we got the producer price index the day after we got the CPI. And this time we got a bigger than expected, much bigger than expected increase in the August number. So they were looking for the headline number to go up 0.4 and the range of expectations was up 0.3 to up 0.6. And the actual number came in at up 0.7. So more than the high end. I mean, here is an economy where everybody is convinced that the inflation war has been won by the government, right? Just, you know, we just have to get off the battlefield now and go home and everything is done. And you get a number that's that bad. Now, remember, the PPI bottomed out, or topped out rather, before the CPI. 
because we started to see declining PPI in advance of declining CPI. Well, now it's working in reverse the same way. The, C, the PPI is now having bigger gains, but there's a lag there. Because remember, the producer prices get passed on to the consumer. And again, it's not the rising producer prices that cause the rising consumer prices. They're all caused by inflation. But the dominoes fall in line. Before businesses can raise the prices they charge their customers, their suppliers raise the prices that they charge them. Because remember, again, the economists say, well, it's cost price push, right? Because costs are going up, and so businesses then have to raise their prices. Costs and prices are two words for the same thing. One person's price is another person's cost. So the price that somebody charges a business for raw materials, well, that's the cost to that business to buy those raw materials. You know, the price that you charge your boss for your uh, labor, your wages, that's a price. That's his cost. His cost to employ you is your price that you get for being employed. So you're just looking at the same thing from the perspective of the buyer and the seller. But when you say, well, prices go up because costs go up, that's like saying prices go up because prices go up. Now, that doesn't make any sense. What starts the prices from going up? You can't say prices go up because prices go up because that's circular. No, prices go up because money supply expands. That's what does it. But generally, it happens in order. The prices go up uh, that, that businesses pay, those costs, and then they pass those on to their consumers. So what we're seeing now in the PPI, we're going to see that in the CPI later. Now, look at the year over year. Now, the PPI was below 2% on a year over year basis. It was 0.8 last month, year over year. The expectation was for an increase to 1.3. Instead, it doubled to 1.6. That's a doubling of year over year increase in producer prices in a single month. And next month is going to be the same situation. It's going to go up. Now, X Food and Energy, it was a little better than expected. It was supposed to be up 2.3. It was up 2.2. Uh, you know, no big deal. But that is an improvement over the 2.4 from last month. But I expect next month the number to go the other way. I think not only will we be above 2.2, we'll probably be back above 2.4. Uh, X Food and Energy, month over month, the core was up 0.3, uh, pretty much in line. And the year over year, uh, core was up 3%. Again, the core up 3%, and that is uh higher than the 2.7% that the core was up year over year last month. So uh, headed in the wrong direction. So again, these, this was bad news. This was a bad report card uh, on, on inflation. Uh, and the markets have not digested this. And of course, they've ignored uh, all the other price increases. Another thing that happened uh, just today, as a matter of fact, this morning, the United Auto Workers went on strike. And if you look at what they're demanding in the form of pay hikes, I think they want something like a 10% per year raise uh, for each of the next four years. And they, they, want, they want to reduce their hours worked. They want to work four days a week instead of five, and they want to get paid more. So they want to work less and be paid more. I guess that's nice work if you can get it. The problem is eventually they'll destroy their own jobs because they're helping to make their employers uh, uh, less competitive, less efficient. When you pair that with what the Biden administration is doing with these new mandates on, on fuel economy and other stuff, I mean, we're driving our companies out of business. You know, we don't really have a big three anymore because I forget who owns Chrysler, but it's not really an American company anymore. We got GM and Ford, but, you know, they were bailed out. They failed during the last uh, financial crisis. I predicted that, by the way, years before they've collapsed. I, I said that when we had the next financial crisis, which I predicted, I knew that these companies were going to go bankrupt based on how they had financed uh, all these automobile purchases. Uh, so I, I knew this was going to happen. And we wasted all that money because they're going to go bankrupt again. Uh, and maybe the unions realize this. And they just want to get as much as they can you know, before it happens, right? Take, take as big a share of this shrinking pie uh, before the taxpayers 
are asked to, to bail it out again. And of course, if we have to bail out GM and, uh, and Ford, where's the money going to come from? You know, I hear people talk about, well, it's going to be a taxpayer bailout. No, the taxpayers aren't doing it. It's everybody that has dollars because the government has already blown through all the tax money. There's no tax money to bail out uh, anybody. There's just inflation. They have to print the money. That's where it's all going to come from. So the inflation tax, and that's the real reason that these GM workers need a 10% wage hike. They got to catch up to all the inflation of the last few years. I mean, prices are up in the last three years, about 20%, according to the government, right? You know, year over year CPI gains, that, you know, that's about where we are, maybe a little bit less. But that means in reality, they're up 40%, 35, 40%. That's what's going on. So the workers who have these jobs, they have seen the value of their paychecks slashed by the inflation tax. That's why they need, you know, pay raises. I, I, you know, I don't blame them. I think they're being a little, you know, uh, uh, over the top with, you know, we're going to work less. Uh, they should be willing to work more, uh, not less. But they need more money because they can't survive on the money they've got. It's like they, they've just had their pay reduced. That's what inflation does. It reduces your pay, just like a tax does. When the government taxes you, they take money out of your paycheck, and so you have less money to spend. When they tax you by inflation, they just destroy the value of your paycheck because they make the price of everything that you have to buy with that paycheck go up. And so you run out of money sooner. Your paycheck doesn't go as far because you've had to share it with the government. You've had to pay the inflation tax. But I know a lot of people will, again, try to make the argument that, oh, no, you know, these, um, uh, uh, you know, the strike, and who knows how long this is going to go on. And, of course, it is disruptive for the auto industry. Uh, you know, Biden, you know, made a speech today, and, he, you know, he, he says nobody wants to strike, but I'm not going to criticize anybody for striking. I want to support the workers, of course, because not only do the unions vote for the Democrats, but they raise a lot of money for the Democrats. So there's nothing Biden can say to bite the hand that feeds him. So he's going to support this. Uh, but it's, you know, obviously it's another negative. But a lot of people will be trying to say, oh, you see, this is going to cause inflation, right? This is inflationary because, you know, the, 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 the higher wages are going to be passed on in higher prices. Now, that's true. They will be passed on. But the wage hikes themselves, that's not what's causing the inflation. It's the inflation that is causing the workers to demand more money. And because there's been inflation, their employers can afford to pay it, at least some of it, because they've been able to raise the price of their cars. So now they have more money to pay their workers. But all of this is happening as a result of inflation. It doesn't cause inflation. So the fact that we're having these strikes and workers need more money, this is a byproduct of the inflationary period that we're in. And what investors and the public should take from this is look at this strike as more of an indication that the inflation problem is getting worse and that more labor unions are going to go on strike. More people are going to demand higher uh, wages. And of course, companies have to increase their prices as a result of this. Now, the problem is the lag because the workers normally get their pay hikes later. So the cost of living goes up first, and then the wages go up. And now the employers pay higher wages, so they raise their prices. So the workers kind of never catch up in an inflationary spiral. They're always behind the, the, the curve, right? Because the price goes up first. They try to play catch up, but then they get a raise, but it doesn't quite catch up. And then they fall further behind. You know, and in the 70s, how did they deal with that? Well, your wife got a job, right? That's how they deal, dealt with it back then. Women that didn't work. Married women all of a sudden worked. That's how they caught up. That's how they could pay the bills. But that's not going to work again because, it's, you know, the women are already in the workforce. They're there, you know. Uh, and so, you know, it's not like you've got, you know, a spare player on the bench that can, that can come into the game, you know, uh, you know to, to help you out. Everybody's already on the field. And unless you're going to pull your kids out of school and, you know, put them to work, uh, people are just going to have to accept a, a big decline in their standard of living. Now, maybe that's one of the reasons that the um, consumer sentiment numbers that came out today, they took an unexpected 
uh, dive, although they were supposed to go down a little bit. I was looking at the forecast and we went down quite a bit more. So the last month, uh, the August uh, consumer sentiment number was 69.5 and they were looking for a drop to 69.2. And instead we went the other way. We went up to 67 or or we went all the way down to 67.7, which was weaker than expected. So it shows that consumers are less optimistic. They're getting more concerned about the economy. And that's, again, one of the reasons that Biden's uh, poll numbers are so weak. We did get retail sales also when we got the PPI. And I think the media made a big deal about this because they were up 0.6 and um, the expectation was up 0.2. And uh, although we did revise the prior month down a bit from up 0.7, up 0.5, the net of the revisions was still a beat. Uh, But to me, again, the increase in retail sales is a reflection of increasing prices. These are not adjusted for inflation. And even if they did adjust them, the adjustment wouldn't be big enough because the government's version of inflation is about half of what inflation really is. So these numbers, in my mind, just confirm that everybody is paying more. They're not buying more, they're paying more. They're, 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 they're paying more and they're getting less. That's what's going on with retail sales. So it's not indicative of a strong economy, it's indicative of inflation. And inflation is going to get worse. Empire State Manufacturing, I wanted to mention that one. It was a positive for a change. These numbers have been negative, 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 but it was down up only 1.9. So barely a positive number. The, The prior month was minus 19. So there was a little relief there. Industrial production also a little bit stronger than expected. But on the inflation front, the number that is a bit worrying was the uptick in capacity utilization because that was at 79.3 in the prior month and it jumped up to 79.7. Although, no, they revised the prior month from 79.3 to 79.5. They were looking for 79.3 in August, so we got 79.7. But as we get closer to capacity, right, that means that we don't have as much Uh, spare capacity to ramp up production. And and so that's also another problem for for inflation, because, you know, one way that you can combat inflation is with more production, because the the increased money supply is putting upward pressure on prices. The increased goods supply is putting downward pressure on prices. So if you have more upward pressure from inflation than downward price pressure from innovation and production, then you get rising prices. But again, the inflation rate is not how much prices go up, but how much they would have gone down relative to how much they went up. So if prices should have gone down by 5% due to a free, a free market economy being super strong and, and being innovative and being productive, but the government prints so much money that instead of being rewarded with 5% reduction in our prices, we get punished by having to pay 2% higher prices. That's not 2% inflation. That's 7%. Because, but for all that inflation, I could have got all this stuff cheap. And all the money I could have saved by buying stuff cheaper, that would have freed up more money to buy new things that maybe I can't even afford now, stuff that I'm not even buying. I would have been buying it if my cost of living went down I could have afforded to buy extra stuff. But because the government taxed me with all this inflation, I I don't get that extra stuff. In fact, I'm paying more. So the government can always hide behind increasing productivity and use that as a a smokescreen to get away with a surreptitious inflation tax. But as they continue to undermine economic productivity, then that smokescreen is clearing up. And then we have to see more and more of the inflation. But again, the bigger problem is going to be our inability to export our inflation. One of the main reasons that our official numbers have been so low, other than the fact that they're rigged, is our trade deficits. We export the money we print and we import all the goods that everybody else produces. But as the world de-dollarizes and realizes that the dollar is a bottomless pit, that inflation is never going back to 2%, that deficits are going to be multi-trillion as far as the eye can see, that we're a banana republic, you know, except we don't have bananas, right? When the world figures this out, 
uh, the dollar is going to drop. And then all the inflation that we've been exporting is going to come back and, and wash up on our shores. In fact, it's going to hit us uh, like a tsunami, uh, and, and we're going to be flooded with money, and, and prices are going to go ballistic. But again, before that happens, um, take your positions. I, I was very encouraged, actually, by the action again in the precious metal stocks uh, this week, particularly on Thursday and Friday. So we'll see if this follows through, uh, especially if we if you know we have this negative week in tech, you know, capped off by the ARM IPO that looks like it ran out of steam uh, quickly. Uh, if we're going to rotate out of tech into gold, I mean, no one's done that rotation yet. I mean, that's going to be the big one when, when people start buying gold stocks uh, as if they were growth stocks, because right now they're value stocks and nobody wants them because they are super cheap. Uh, but once they become less cheap, once they have momentum, then you're going to have a whole new class of buyers because it could be one of the only sectors that's really performing, given how cheap they are and how much higher gold can go. So, again, you can take advantage of that you know, by buying physical gold that shift gold. Or if you want to do what I'm doing, I've loaded up on gold stocks. I bought more this week. You know, before the rally, thankfully, I caught, I, there were some stocks that were near the lows, and I picked them up, and I, and, I, and I caught into this rally. But I've been buying in my personal account. Every time there's a big sell-off, I'm, I'm just there buying, right? I just keep expanding. I look at, I look at it as an opportunity. I don't get mad uh, when the stocks go down. I take advantage of it, right? Uh, and, and that's what I've been doing. And one of these days, you know, they're just going to take off, and, you know, I'm just going to sit back and, and go along for the ride. And I, I'm encouraging, you know, my, my followers to, uh, to do the same thing. So, again, you know, my gold fund, the Europe Pacific Gold Fund, uh, if you're speculative and you're willing to take the risk, you know, load up. I mean, if you're a gambler, bet the farm, right? If, if you're not a gambler and you can't afford to lose the farm, then don't do it. <laughs> but, you know, I think risk-reward, this is the best gamble I've ever seen on these gold stocks. And I want to have a big bet because I think the odds are, are going to give me a huge payoff uh, if I'm right. So, you know, you can open up an account, talk to my reps at your Pacific Asset Management, or just buy the fund. You know, you're a do-it-yourselfer, you're at E-Trade, uh, uh, Interactive Brokers, uh, Schwab, Fidelity, any of these discount brokers. You can buy my gold fund, no load, uh, do it yourself, just buy it and get in, uh, you know, before the next move up. You can read the prospectus, make sure you understand the risks. Uh, and if you can afford those risks, then I think it's worth, uh, you know, placing place in these bets and do it before we get the next uh, next big move up. Anyway, that's it for today. I want to make sure I don't get into sundown, I, although I'm still I still got some time before uh, the new year starts here. Uh, so, again, wishing everybody a, a happy new year. And uh, I'll be back again in uh, uh, the new year with more of my podcast. So make sure and uh, and, and stick around and, and uh, I'll see you soon.